Good morning, and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk O'Bear, and I'm Kirk. Hope you are enjoying the shift in weather. I know I am. Uh, if you listen to my show, or if you know me, you know that I'm a big fan of baseball. And like most baseball fans, I've been getting used to the new rules. And I have some perspective on that. And believe it or not, it does have relevance to the law. <laughs> so, it, as you know, there are several changes that have been made effective this season for Major League Baseball. Um, they had been in effect for, I think, a couple of years in the minor leagues. And these rules were tested in spring training this year, prior to the season beginning. And all of them are designed to enhance, uh, I think, the spectator experience to promote base stealing and uh, enhance the likelihood of base hits, and also to keep the uh, uh, pace of the game going at a uh, reasonable rate. We've all been to baseball games that start at 7-something p.m. and go on for four hours, and, uh, you know, it makes it more difficult to uh, sit in the stands for that long, especially when it gets to be very late at night and some of those night games. And you know this if you're a fan. Um, there's been a shift over, I don't know, a couple decades probably, where there are more night games than there are day games. In fact, we have uh, um, a minority of games are now played uh, during the week, during the day. Uh, the majority of games are played at night or late afternoon um, on the weekends. We do see Sunday games that are about 1 o'clock. But anyway, um, well, the whole pitch clock controversy was something that when I initially heard about it, I didn't like it. I thought, why do we have to add another layer of regulation onto this whole process? I mean, baseball is supposed to be a somewhat leisurely game with uh, brief periods of intense excitement, but then a lot of you know, field play and uh, pitching and balls and strikes and things like that in between. Uh, but when I saw how it actually played out, it, it makes sense to me that um, a pitcher should be ready to deliver within the allotted time frame, 20 seconds if somebody, if there's a runner on base, or 15 seconds if there's no runner on base, and the pitcher has to deliver be ready to deliver the pitch with, uh, I believe it is eight seconds on the pitch clock. And the batter has to be ready to receive the pitch with at least nine seconds on the pitch clock. And that's all very reasonable. And there have been some growing pains, some adjustments, mostly for pitchers, but occasionally for a batter who's not ready to go. But one thing I noticed about the rules is that there's a, a lot of uh, discretion um, incorporated into how they're applied. For example, if there uh, there's a limited number of mound visits now, five per game for each side. And the reason they did that, obviously, is that you can't use a mound visit to save yourself from a uh, pitch 
clock violation. So, but if there's an injury or if there's some issue that the umpire needs to, or one of the base umpires needs to have some involvement with, then in that official's discretion, they can suspend the pitch clock and sort it out and so on. So, you know, like many things where there are regulations or rules, there are times when they should be suspended or they should bend to the reasonableness of the circumstance. Because when we have laws that are strictly applied in such a way that it results in a nonsensical or illogical result, there should be a way to interpret it differently under the circumstances, on a case-by-case basis. And that's really the essence of what the law is. Um, It's rules that are in the form, usually, of statutes, but it can also be rules that are developed by case law that interprets statutes or the Constitution. And in a lot of appellate cases, we see some reasoning by the court that says, the law says this thing, that is the rule. However, there are times when exceptions are warranted, and uh, judges are expected to exercise discretion, because after all, they're dealing the myriad of different circumstances that one can face, given any uh, scenario, are impossible to nail down with uh, a written code. So uh, another interesting thing about these new rules is the disengagement policy. So a pitcher now has two, a maximum of two disengagements, meaning the his foot comes off the rubber or there's a pickoff attempt. And this is per batter up. However, if there is an advancement of runners due to a successfully stolen base or if there's a successful pickoff, then that disengagement count resets. So initially I was thinking, how does this work? I mean, you get two tries, and then after that you just don't get to try, and someone can just freely steal a base? Well, no. Um, The rule is that a pitcher can try as many pickoffs as he wants, but he can only be unsuccessful twice, because the third unsuccessful pickoff attempt will result in the runner advancing as though he successfully stole the base. So it increases the risk involved, which is actually kind of crafty if you think about it. So two pickoff attempts don't work. Now the runner knows that the pitcher is going to be reluctant to try a pickoff because it has to be uh, successful which gives a bit more of an incentive for that runner to steal the base. Um, Also, as you know, the bases are bigger. I think they're approximately, what, three and a half square inches all the way around um, bigger. Not sure how how much of an actual difference that makes, but it's designed to, number one, help reduce injuries associated with sliding into bases or, or trying to get to the base in time. But also, even though it's a a fairly small fraction of distance, it does shorten the distance between first and second and second and third, making it so, theoretically, it's 
slightly easier to steal those bases. So I think that's a, an interesting rule. Also, the no-shift policy, which when I was in Little League, they didn't allow shifts. I don't remember in high school. I didn't play baseball in high school. But I know um, there had been a big trend where um, players, uh, you know, the rule is you're supposed to have two infielders on one side of second base and two infielders on the other side of second base. But, you know, it's very common, let's say a right-handed batter comes up and strategically the um, defensive team knows that this is a hitter that 95% of the time will hit to left field or the left infield. And the shift is when, you know, you take some players from the second base side and move them over to the third base side to increase coverage. Well, that makes it less likely that there's a successful base hit because you have more coverage on that side. So the rule is now that until the ball leaves the pitcher's hand, uh, the infielders need to be positioned at their appropriate places. After the ball has left the pitcher's hand, and we know how long does it take for the ball to reach the plate? Approximately less than a second. At that point, there can be a shift, but... As you can imagine, it is uh, a huge disincentive to, to try and uh, change location with that quick of a response. So overall, I know we're very early in the season, but I've noticed uh, the games are resulting in higher scoring. Perhaps that is probably due to some of these rule changes. But um, I went to the game. Uh, earlier this week and it was great it was really very exciting to uh, be there in person of course <laughs> it's always been exciting but to kind of see how all these new interesting rules uh, work and take effect so we're going to take a break and listen to some commercial messages but then we'll be right back stay tuned welcome back so uh, another new rule is how timeouts work when the batter is in the box um, at every at-bat, um, a batter has an opportunity to take one timeout. And at which point the uh, pitch clock resets. And I'm sure you all remember back in the day, and I think Ryan Braun was probably one of the worst defenders in this area, but he had this whole routine. and. People say that, you know, it was probably a symptom of having a OCD um, where he just had to go through this very lengthy ritual ritual of taking off both of his gloves, putting them back on, readjusting the Velcro, tapping his uh, feet a certain number of times, certain number of practice swings away from the box, certain number of practicing swings in the box, and then finally uh, addressing the situation at hand <laughs> and uh, he wasn't the only player there were a lot of players that were just basically going through this whole ritual that at times got painful to watch uh because it just took so long um there, there had been encouragement over the years to not do all that and to put some time limits and things like that but none of it was as you know strictly 
applied with some set of structure like uh, what we have now. And I don't think there's anything wrong with a batter being expected to be ready to hit. Um, You know, let's keep things moving because without any guidelines, without any framework for that, uh, it, it just lengthens the entire process exponentially. Because if you're talking about every pitch, where either the pitcher or the batter can just take their time, it adds up. Because think about how many pitches there are in a game. If there's an, you know, if we're shaving off ten or twenty seconds out of each pitch as part of that process, we are saving a lot of time. One thing I wondered about, though, is that. Uh, this delicate balance in the world of baseball, where it is, after all, at, at its heart, a business, right? Uh, they provide entertainment, but the big infrastructure that surrounds how professional baseball works depends upon dollars and cents. And baseball clubs, like the Milwaukee Brewers Baseball Club, uh, has a responsibility to generate revenue. And that's necessary so that the players can be paid, but also so that facilities, quality facilities, like American Family uh, Ballpark and and others, which by the way is a first class ballpark. Um, all of that requires very carefully managing the revenue, right down to the price of a beer, uh, all the other things they do to try and enhance the opportunity for a quality uh, spectator experience, but also to generate um, fan interest, uh, to have fun, right? So when you're making the game go faster, you know where I'm going with this, right? When you make the game go faster, that's fewer hot dogs, fewer bratwurst, and fewer beers that get sold, just logically speaking, because the game is not going to last as long. So <clears throat> I wondered about that. I wondered if that was something that <clears throat> there had been any discussion about. Um, it, the long and short of it is that I think that the majority of fans uh, make one, sometimes two trips to the concession stand. But they've also, if you've noticed, pretty much done away with cash transactions. And now you can use your iPhone or your smartphone to order food, to order beverages, and they will deliver them to your seat. So I think they've accounted for some of the potential revenue lost. And if we're really talking about shortening the game by anywhere from, you know, a half hour to 40, 40 minutes or so, it's probably not a tremendous loss in revenue given the other things that they have been able to um, put in place to make sure that that's, that's there. But uh, I think we can foresee an adjustment if, it, you know, you have to kind of see how this goes to see how it affects that. We could see an increase in concession prices. We could see an increase in parking fees. We could see an increase in ticket prices. Who knows? But anyway, um, it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out. So uh, on another note, uh, if you know me or you listen to my show, you know I'm also a huge fan of golf. I talk about it all the time. And this week we're witnessing uh, the Masters tournament in Augusta, Georgia. And 
somewhat surprisingly, this year uh, live golfers, and those are the people that uh, more or less left the PGA in order to join the live golf tour, which, by the way, they didn't say, I'm leaving the PGA and joining live. All of them said, I'm joining live. And then the PGA said, well, you're out of the PGA then. Uh, but live golfers have been invited to play the Masters this year. There was a lot of debate about whether that would occur or should it occur, given the fact that the Masters is one of the majors. That is a combination-sponsored event. It is definitely a PGA event. Um, PGA rules apply. The RNA rules apply. But also, it's privately sponsored by the Augusta National Golf Course. And it's one of those events that has its own set of rules, including significantly that if you win the Masters, you are supposed to be invited to play every Masters tournament for the rest of your life. So, in a way, it makes sense that if you are one of those players that has won that tournament in the past... One of the perks you get is that you are invited to come back and play forever, as long as you're alive, and as long as you want to, I guess. So that's not true with every tournament. I mean, if you win, I don't know, the WM management, you don't automatically get to come back and play every year they have that tournament. This whole process of seeking exemptions for qualification is how people get into tournaments. There's a myriad of different layers as to who gets to play and who doesn't. The very basic way to get into a tournament is to qualify. And they have pre-qualification rounds or pre-qualification tournaments to get into any given tournament, like a, a sub-tournament or a qualification process. Then there are people that, depending on the tournament and how it's organized, could be invited. And cer certain components of um, the golf world are granted invitation privileges to allow them to invite somebody to come and play. But then there's also criteria in terms of where somebody stands on the FedEx uh, cup point uh, spectrum, where they stand in the money earned process, how many tournaments they have won and which ones they have won or where they've placed. Um, so uh, very complicated, different layers of qualification to get there. Uh, and do it. So it makes sense to me. I mean, I detest the whole idea of the live tour because I think it's a very bad thing for what the PGA stands for. And I think the PGA has every right to um, retract <laughs> or uh, revoke, I should say, membership because when, when one is on the live tour, they are by definition not meeting their contractual requirements by accepting PGA membership. I don't know if you know this, but when, by becoming a PGA member, and if you declare yourself a professional on tour, you agree that you have to play a certain number of PGA events during any given season, unless excused for medical or other emergency type reasons. So there's an obligation. Um, it, it's actually part of the sport that when you earn that privilege, it's also a responsibility. Uh, 
So if you're going to be off in Saudi Arabia or, you know, all over the world, golfing in events that are sponsored by a completely separate private entity, you're not going to be playing in all the PGA events that you agreed that you would play in. It's just obvious. So that's the basis for revoking membership is that when they can't meet their obligations. But on the other hand, it makes sense to me that you wouldn't want to deprive somebody uh, the honor of being invited to come and play based on a past uh, victory in that forum. And also, as Rory McIlroy correctly pointed out, it's good to have you know at least one event where you can truly say that the best players in the world are attending, because that means more for the people that didn't defect from the PGA. They know that the Dustin Johnsons and others, the the Phil Mickelsons are from the Live Tour are there to be beaten, hopefully. Ha. Anyway, we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. All right, switching gears here. Um, I got a lot of questions this past week about what on earth is a grand jury and how does it work? Uh, in light of recent events, it's something that has come up quite a bit. Um, just wondering what that is, what that process is, how it works, and so on. So I thought I'd take the opportunity to explain all that. Uh the concept here is that, uh, constitutionally speaking, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about a state constitution or the federal constitution, uh, the basic concept of due process and the incorporation of some determination of probable cause needs to be part of any uh, charging process. So, again, the basic idea here is that when the executive branch of the government, which includes district attorneys, U.S. attorneys, prosecutors, um, decide that they want to initiate a criminal prosecution. They have to go through some process whereby either a neutral and detached magistrate, that's the correct terminology, makes a determination as to the existence or non-existence of probable cause, or in the alternative, uh, there can be uh, the use of a grand jury. It's kind of funny that the grand jury is um, an initial part of the process where the burden of proof is much lower, but a pettit jury, or as we usually just say, jury trial, jury, uh, has a much higher burden of proof, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Not sure exactly why we call it a grand jury other than the fact that it's it's a lot more people <laughs> that are assembled. As part of that process. So, little historical fact here, Wisconsin actually does have a grand jury process built into our statutes. It is never used. I'm not sure why. But much like in the federal system, where grand juries are used all the time, and in New York State, where that is almost exclusively the method by which charges are brought, um, there's a, a very big difference in how cases are initiated. In Wisconsin, what happens is uh, the district attorney's office will file a criminal complaint. That is a document that states what the charges are, what the maximum penalties are, um, and recites facts that the state, the prosecution, believes support a finding of probable cause. Now, since we can't just rely on things in writing without there being 
uh, the right to confrontation and so forth built into this process. When a criminal complaint is filed, and this applies in virtually every jurisdiction, including federal jurisdiction, there then needs to be what's called a preliminary hearing. And again, this is only where we're talking about a criminal complaint having been filed. At a preliminary hearing, there is no jury, but it is a hearing with a judge, that neutral and detached magistrate. It's the first time in a case, again, we're distinguishing here between the complaint process and the grand jury process, but it's the first time in a case where a criminal complaint is filed where somebody other than the DA's office and somebody who doesn't work for the DA's office gets to take a look at the evidence, again, in that neutral, detached manner, and then make a determination based on what's presented as to whether or not probable cause exists. And then if it does, as it usually is the case, then the case, then there's what's called a bind over, and that means it goes to the next phase. So the alternative procedure is to convene a grand jury. Um, very common in federal practice. And also, as we've said, in New York State, this is what they do. So when someone is summoned for grand jury duty, that means they're basically on call. And with sometimes very little notice of, you know, a day or two or maybe a week, when the grand jury is called to convene, there's then a private, secret, one-sided hearing that's conducted. And you know the old saying, um, a prosecutor could indict a ham sandwich if they wanted to, is kind of true, because there's no cross-examination, the defendant isn't present, the defense lawyer is not present. It's a one-sided show that's put on by the prosecutor. Hearsay is admissible, um, it's basically just having a meeting in front of a bunch of people where the prosecutor at the end of the presentation I mean, I've, I've been at grand jury proceedings that lasted all of six minutes, you know. And then it's basically requesting, please deliver a true bill. They'll deliberate sometimes for a few minutes or so, but by and large, we see most times that the uh, grand jury agrees and they deliver a true bill. If they don't, it's called a no bill, meaning uh, the prosecutors get to try again at a later point. Um, although, they're, again, they're supposed to be discretionate in those types of situations. And, and the, the, there's pros and cons for both of these areas. In some ways, uh, a criminal complaint and preliminary hearing is much more expeditious. It's used in the federal system in cases where there's a concern about uh, flight risk or manipulation of evidence or um, the safety of the community. Because with a by issuing a criminal complaint, there's also an arrest warrant that can be immediately executed. To convene a grand jury, that, of course, requires more time, more organization, and a process whereby nothing can occur until that indictment, indictment is delivered. So the advantage of pursuing a criminal complaint is it can be more expedient. The disadvantage, from the prosecutor's perspective, is that when there's a preliminary hearing, it's in open court. They have to present testimony. It gives the defense at least a glimpse of what's involved with the case, whereas seeking an indictment from a grand jury involves none of that. And oftentimes, as we saw earlier this week, when someone is indicted, they don't get to see what they're actually charged with or even what the basis is until 
minutes before the hearing where the indictment is unsealed. So, you know, there are perceived unfairnesses in, in both of these categories. Um, the criminal complaint process is fraught with problems, um, not the least of which our legislature in Wisconsin has created all of these procedural rules that make it, frankly, easier for the prosecution to meet their burden um, over the years. And partly due to the fact that uh, court time is precious <laughs> um, and uh, they come up with a variety of ways to try and save time. Interesting how much effort there is in trying to save time on the prosecutor and the judge's behalf, but you know that type of consideration is not really extended to the defendant. Other than, you know, there are rules in terms of how quickly things need to be done. One can demand a speedy trial um, if somebody's in custody and they have not had their bond determined, then yes, uh, those are all things that keep things moving at a reasonable pace. So criticism that, that exists in the grand jury process is that it, it is not anywhere near um, a full-blown hearing about all the evidence. And all a lot of the rules that apply to the criminal complaint process whereby um, a judge determines if evidence is truly um, plausible or if there is a legal theory that makes sense. And a lot of times someone's charged with a crime that legally doesn't uh, match with a, an, an educated and experienced judge's perspective because of the ability to correctly interpret the law, including the legislative intent behind that law. If you have a grand jury of people that are, by definition, citizens from the community, those legal nuances are very easy to gloss over. And it's it happens where an indictment is um, achieved, but the legal basis, had they gone to a regular preliminary hearing with a criminal complaint process, very likely may not have survived that initial phase because of a, an unorthodox or thin legal theory. So what I mean by legal theory is that we're not just talking about facts. We're not just talking about whether you know Joe Schmo robbed a liquor store. We're talking about how the law is written, what specific elements of any offense are there, what type of evidence can be used to support that theory. And also there's oftentimes case law interpretations of how different elements are supposed to be treated for any given offense. Um, and judges are able to take those things into consideration. Grand juries really cannot. So in some ways, the grand jury process is seen as um, kind of a cursory way of getting over the initial hurdle of establishing probable cause. All right, we're coming up on time for another break. We'll see you on the other side. Hang in there. Welcome back. So I can report that roughly 30-something percent of the voting public in our most recent election uh, voted against the provision that would modify the Wisconsin Constitution uh, by referendum to expand 
the, the number of factors and different considerations that can be made in setting cash bond in a case. Um, so 70%, roughly thereabouts, of our voting public supported that referendum, and it basically passed. So there are there's movement afoot to implement that. And I talked about it quite a bit leading up to the election. Apparently I caught the attention of maybe 30% of the people to investigate what this is really all about. But if you saw the question on the ballot, it, it can be very confusing in the sense that if you really drill down to understand what they're talking about here, it lists a number of factors. And some of them are probably easy to understand in the sense that uh, a judge now will be able to consider not just a person's flight risk uh, in setting cash bond, but now very specifically if the person has been convicted of a quote-unquote violent crime. Not defined in the referendum that, that was out there, not defined in that question. But if you noticed, our legislature just recently passed a new law that broadly expands what we will call a violent crime, way beyond what you would normally think is a violent crime. That includes like all kinds of stuff that was not, by definition, previously a violent crime. Now, no, it doesn't involve writing bad checks or something like that, but it's it's been in vastly increased the number of things now that we're going to call a violent crime. Previously, a judge could consider protection of the public, but an emphasis was supposed to be given to finding other conditions on bond, such as day reporting, electronic monitoring, absolute sobriety, no contact with witnesses, um, etc. A number of other, um, you know, logical restrictions on a person's activity or liberty that would apply so as not to make this all about money. And that's why for a very long time, our state constitution has said that in any given case, the presumption shall be that a person is entitled to release without being required to post cash. Um, but now that's been changed. This all, of course, has to do with the Darrell Brooks case, the individual who got out of a Milwaukee County uh, holding facility on a very low cash bond and then proceeded to, unfortunately, kill a number, and injure a number of people in Waukesha. And, of course, that case enraged the public, rightfully so, because when crimes are committed... It is part of how our society responds to those illegal acts by having an appropriate response. So in that case, the appropriate response was to prosecute him and for him to serve the rest of his life in prison, which he will do. But to turn our entire constitutional structure as it relates to Bond on its head because of that guy really doesn't make any sense. So the net effect of this is that it gives prosecutors much more power to keep people in custody by asking for outrageously high sums of money that any given defendant will likely not have. 
all over the country, there have been efforts to, to deal with the disparity that is often seen between someone who has no or very little means to have, you know, fungible cash at their instant disposal uh, when there's a presumption of innocence that applies, which is there up until and only if a jury convicts or somebody enters a plea. The presumption of innocence means that a person is not supposed to be treated as though they're guilty. They're not supposed to be punished. They are not supposed to be punished. Yet, we have thousands of people that remain behind bars because of the way that our process works. And that number has been that percentage of people that are charged that have to remain in custody because they lack the financial means to get out is ever increasing. And now it will be very much so a big problem. And it's also just not fair that if someone has millions of dollars at their disposal through legitimate or even illegitimate means gained, that that person will be able to easily post whatever amount the prosecutor asks for. That's not right, you know? So <laughs> someone could be an extremely violent criminal but have a lot of money and be able to post and get out. And a lot of this, I think, is going to shift how these determinations are made. Now, there was one other provision in there that caught my attention, and for the life of me, I cannot explain why or how the reasoning applies here. And if you saw it on the ballot, it said that a judge can impose cash bond to, quote, preserve affirmative defenses. And I said, what? Okay. So if you know this already, bear with me. But if you don't, affirmative defenses are those defenses in a case where the defense affirmatively, presents evidence on a particular theory. A very obvious and often uh, deployed affirmative defense is self-defense. Yes, the person committed the, the charge alleged, however, as a defense, as another layer of analysis on here, one can claim that under the circumstances they perceived the need to defend him or herself with deadly force, or sometimes not deadly force, and that that apprehension of death or great bodily harm that the person was facing in their own mind was reasonable under the circumstances. That's an affirmative defense. So what it means is that the defense is, re is required to present evidence to support that affirmative defense. And we have a number of them. You know, another affirmative defense is an alibi. And it there is a burden of production that comes from the defense. In most cases where there are not affirmative defenses applicable, the burden of proof is always on the prosecution for each and every element of every offense charged, and the defense is required to do nothing. However, when there is an affirmative defense, it shifts the balance, and sometimes it is a burden of production, not necessarily a burden of persuasion, but in order to invoke something like an alibi. Uh, the defense is required to notify the prosecution of certain things by statute a certain number of days before the trial commences. 
including what witnesses will be called to support an alibi, where the defendant claims they were, and any supporting documentation or witnesses to allow an investigation into that alibi. Is this referendum saying that it is in a situation where a defendant may have an opportunity to present an affirmative defense, it is better for that defendant to sit behind bars awaiting trial? I do not understand, but that's essentially where this seems to come from. You know what? I I am going to do more digging on why that particular provision was in there. There was not a whole lot of explanation provided, but I'll report back to you on what the philosophy was as we dig into it a bit deeper. But when I I saw that that provision was coming up and that was going to be there, I did ask some questions and really didn't get any answers. So, you know, it's possible. I don't know just yet. It's possible that that was put in there to try and provide a sense of balance so that, you know, it's kind of ludicrous, but you're going to be required to post a higher amount of bond uh, because of convictions in your past, because of the risk to the community, and so you can have a fair trial. (laughs) Interesting. All right. Well, you know, unfortunately, we live in a world where, again, you know, politics and fear of the unknown continues to affect and whittle away at our rights in ways that uh, are tipping the balance unfairly, unfairly against your right and my right to live a peaceful, productive life. Uh, in our democracy. That's all the time we have for this week. Uh, please tune in next week as you can, every single week, every Saturday, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.